I'm Catherine Budig. And I'm Kate Fagan. And this is Free Cookies, a humorous podcast filled with thoughtful conversations and offering delicious takeaways. And today... I'm going to give it over to Kate because I think you are probably very excited to tell the people who's on today's show. On today's show, (laughs) this... Well, it's always hard to say, like, this is my favorite interview ever because then you you immediately know that you've had some awesome people and awesome interviews on the show. But like this, the person we have on today is Sue Monk Kid. I started crying within the first three minutes yes. of the interview. Author, so did producer Lindsay. <laughs> I did too. This is not fair. I cried too. I did. I cried. She cried it, on the inside. No, I did. I cried. There was a... T- <laughs> it, 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 anyway. Uh. Author of The Book of Longings, which was the May pick for Catherine's book club, The Inky Phoenix. And if you don't follow that already, please go follow it at The Inky Phoenix on, on, Instagram. on Instagram. And all I can say, you, right when this interview starts and the way it started, when we all cried, <laughs> it's, it's all, like the way she wrote this book and the way that she seems to show up in the world was just, it, it created a warmth. That's how I felt about it. And so I've been really, really excited to share this interview. Thank you, Catherine. Of course. And, and we recommend that everyone stops and Googles Sue Monk Kid because she, when you hear her voice and you see her author picture, the, the most recent one yeah. for the Book of Longing, she's exactly what you want her to it's look like. It's all there. Like. It's all there. She is so stunning and just statuesque. No, yes, cultured and knowledgeable. And she has the perfect Southern draw. Her voice drips honey, and she also wrote The Secret Life like, of Bees. Oh, look so. at you pulling all together. That's right. But it got us thinking about the topic of permission, because this book, her latest book, is it centers on truly unbelievable female protagonists in this book, Anna being the main one, the her imagined wife of Jesus, and also her aunt, Yaltha. And she describes Yaltha as a woman who trespasses everywhere, one of the more delicious lines that we've read. And so we just started talking about this concept of what does it mean to trespass? What does it mean to wait for permission? And Kate and I kind of have differing experiences and internal reactions to the concept of permission. I mean, I I do agree that we're both people that if we want something, we go after it. Yeah. But I definitely have a tendency to go after something if I think I can get it. (laughs) You know, I think this started out with dating people when I was young. If I wanted to date someone and I thought that they thought that I could be cute, I would full throttle go after them, like unabashedly, because I had the confidence to think, of course they're going to want me. Of course they're going to so, want me. So are you making a distinction between only like the idea of waiting for permission, the things that you granted yourself permission for were things you thought were attainable exactly. versus like reaching past what you thought exactly. you could and get? And yet if there was something that I thought was outside of my reach, and I have had many lofty dreams, in, especially in my yoga career, and many of them I have achieved, but I, there was still that little voice in me that's like, F yeah, Budig, like you, you can get this, you got this, like plant the seed now, you're going to get there, you're going to get there. But when it comes, when it came to rather my dream of being a novelist and writing fiction, there was always this little voice inside of me that was like, you're not good enough to do this. Like only the Sue Monk kids of the world can do this. And because it, the, opening a book and this is the biggest compliment I've gotten from the book club. I've had a couple people write to me and say, you know, thank you for creating this book club because I have fallen out of reading and you've reminded me how much love and joy I feel when I'm in the middle of a story. And thank you for bringing books back into my life, which is exactly how they feel for me. And so in that way, I've always good books and the authors who write them are almost these gods to me. Like, how could I possibly achieve something that has brought me this much joy because they have the special sauce and I don't understand that. And so for the longest time, you know, and and I did listen to what other people would say too, you know, when I was writing my second book, which is nonfiction, both of my books are nonfiction. When I was proposing the book I wanted to write to my literary agent, she was like, yeah, you know, you're, you're famous because of yoga. So you need to stick to yoga. So write a book about yoga. And my second book, Aim True, has yoga in it, but it's many other things. 
And it turns out after we went and met with publishers and proposed this stick to yoga book that I proposed, I casually mentioned to Aim True and everyone is very interested and fast forward, I wrote a book about Aim True. So I, I had that small lesson right there of, okay, you know, my, the, my superior, right? My authority, my agent who knows better than me, at least that's how it felt like, right. did not give me permission to do this. And yet the world gave me permission and asked me to do it. But then now fast forward to this place of, I want to write fiction. I'm like, it makes no sense in my career to write a novel. It has nothing, you know, clearly on the surface to do with what I've been doing as a career for my entire life. And yet it's something that's just been percolating under the surface for as long as I can remember. And um, my amazing wife, that's me, who is sitting across from me right now, uh, decided to write a novel. Has it been, it was over a year ago. Yeah, I started it about a year ago. When her father was particularly bad with ALS. And I, wouldn't you say that you decided to write it because you were, it was a bit of a filling the void and distracting you yeah. and transporting you away from everything that was happening? That's right. I, I, I would say that most of my motivation was just to have a purpose while I sat in hospital rooms. Yes. And, and also when you were home, you would almost every day carve out minimally an hour to go work on this novel. Yes. And I, the, the speed at which you wrote it was unbelievable. And when you handed me a book and said, hey, read my book that did not exist a mere months before, really gave me permission. Because I was like, oh my God. And, and it's been shelved for now. And, and the point isn't, the success, right? The point is what you put your mind to. And just watching you like diligently show up every day and write, you know, 500 words to 2000 words or whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, boom, you created a world, you created characters, you created a story. And I was just like, and, and it wasn't like, well, my wife can do it. I can do it. It's not that kind of energy. It was just, that was the big, who am I waiting? Who am I waiting for? Like, who's going to give me this permission? This is something that I just need to do. Mm-hmm. And you were out of town and I'd had lots of ideas brewing inside of me and lots of notes in my Apple Notes app. And you were out of town and I just decided to write 500 words one night and I emailed them to you. And you said you liked them. <laughs> you wanted and to I know. did like them. And you wanted to know what was going to happen next. So I wrote another 500 words. And it was just, so this concept of permission, you know, I, my entire life have been waiting for an agent to be like, you should write fiction. Right. I see it in you. You're so creative. You have so many ideas. And I had always kind of lightly dusted ideas towards her direction of things that I wanted to do. And she was like, well, that's going to test your chops, which didn't feel like permission at the time. (laughs) It turns out that's probably not what you should say to someone. Um, Right. Was I with you where, or where we heard the, the line or the phrase, like everyone has a symphony to write. It's just, they're going to start it tomorrow. Um, yeah, I read that to you oh, yesterday. That's right. Okay, <laughs> sorry. I did. No, that was earlier than yesterday. I, it had to have been at least three a, days ago. A, okay, maybe three. Okay, good. That's um, from the okay. War of Art. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so, <laughs> if I could together. ask one quick follow up, I mean, I, just to reinsert here, like we are, we are going to get to Sumon Kid, and it is a glorious interview. So please stick around for that. But can I ask you one more question about that? What? Who do you think? other than maybe your agent saying, you know what, I think you need to take a crack at fiction. In your mind when you thought of writing a book, where else would the permission come from? I, I, you know, I was an English literature major at the University of Virginia and obviously, you know, in high school took all the, the English classes that you had to take. And um, I still... I love to be creative. I don't like to be diligent for something that's expected of me, like handing in a paper. Right. I could care less about a paper. And that probably showed in a lot of my educational endeavors, my academic endeavors. And they were just... Missing the joie de vie. Yeah, you know, and, and, and then sometimes I did have the joie de vie and I would still just get some... I think rather like hurtful feedback from professors 
And not saying like, oh, it's shitty writing, but just like, well, it doesn't look like you really put a lot of thought. I, don't, I mean, you even saw a couple. We were going through my mom's garage and a bunch of old books of mine. Yeah. So I think I still have it in my head just throughout the years of people in superior positions to me kind of rolling their eyes at me. Right. And so that limited the idea that you could give permission to yourself because you thought that failure was on the other side of it or that yeah, it was like permanently that 17 year old who handed in yeah. a paper who got a B minus. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the concept of permission is interesting. And again, the book, Anna, the main character in the book of longings, like she's living in right around Jesus's time. So just what is it? 32 AD. Exactly. In Jesus's time because she's his wife. Right. But it's sometimes I need to be reminded of what those dates are. Right. So like 30 AD. And wow. Well, that's not helpful for anyone. Is it? Well, I am focused. That was Kate's phone, everybody. Um, and so in that time, Anna, the main character, she wants permission and needs permission. And she's never going to get it in 32 AD. Women are not doing not even things. Close. So, the book is about her recognizing that she has to give permission to herself to chase things that like, she's never really going to get the kind of quote unquote reward that a lot of times we think we expect now in 2020. Right. So it's like, I give my per myself permission to do it. And it's not necessarily always about the journey. It's also about other people reading it or getting paid for it, getting a mm -hmm. contract for it. And this book is about her giving permission to herself to just be the person in whatever way she possibly can be who she wants to be. But, and funny enough, it's not just giving herself permission. It's the incredibly strong willed women in her life that set the example for her yeah. and give her permission yeah. to be who she is, which is kind of what happened with you and me in my book. Oh, well, thank you for saying that. I, I, well, I just want to add one thing. Cause I think it's, I, when we were talking about the concept of permission and I said to you, I was like, well, I don't, I want to have that conversation. But when I hear people say that, like I just needed to give myself permission. I don't connect with that idea. Mm -hmm. I think there are times in my life where I purposefully restrict myself because I want an excuse not to do something. Right. So for example, which when, that could all get mixed together. Those emotions. Could. Yeah. But I, I know very distinctly in my mind, I, that I've created this holding pattern for myself. Like f the r book I'm writing right now about my dad, I told myself I wasn't really going to start it until the contract was done because I just wanted to make sure, you know, the, the, the outside Chance explanation. That it didn't go through. The outside explanation was like, well, I don't want to get started down one path and then my editor will tell me that's the wrong path. So I'll just wait. But I knew it was an excuse to just take a couple weeks before I started it. So I've like, I've never, and that's why I like hearing your story and hearing how it connects with you, this idea of like waiting for permission and then realizing that you have to give it to yourself. I don't know, maybe I bring my dad and basketball up too much, but it just, I never really absorbed the lesson that I should be waiting for other people's permission. Like from like age seven, I didn't. That's fantastic though. No, I love it. But I also feel like, am I lying to myself about that? Am I trying to, do I place more restrictions on myself than I'm recognizing? Mm. Like, I feel like I, have a, I must have a blind spot. It might just have a different name for you. It might not be called permission. Do you want to name it? <laughs> Let's name it George. No, that was the spot on my head. <laughs> George, George is what I <laughs> that name. That was the bump on my head that every, they a lot we of We have a get. bunch you know, of those plants named anyway. George. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, that's a different road. You know what? We need to bring on Sumo Kid. <laughs> it's time for Sumo Kid. Let's do it. Kid is the award-winning number one best-selling author of novels The Secret Life of Bees, The Mermaid Chair, and The Invention of Wings. She is also the author of several acclaimed memoirs, including The Dance of the Dissonant Daughter, her groundbreaking work on religion and feminism, and the New York Times best-selling books Traveling with Pomegranates, written with her daughter, Ann Kid Taylor, and her newest, The Book of Longings. She lives in North Carolina, but she used to live in Charleston, where we live, but she's in North Carolina now. Let's, let's talk to her. And we are very excited because today we have Sue Monk Kid. Hello, Sue. It's a Thank great you day. so much for being with us. 
<laughs> oh, I am very excited to be with you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that so much because I know you've been through a very different but grueling book tour of sorts, um, all online, and that you're doing your book club, the thebookoflongings.com. Um, and I just wanted to share a little funny story that I was really excited about until I <laughs> figured out that I was a little behind. We live behind in, the curve. <laughs> I was behind the curve. Um, we live in Mount Pleasant. We were in Charleston, South Carolina, where you once lived, and we are dear friends with Jonathan Sanchez, who owns Blue Bicycle Books, and he's also the partner for my my book club, Inky Phoenix. So my very thoughtful wife, Kate, um, picked up your copy because Jonathan got them before the release. So it was, it was six days before the release day. It was very exciting. I felt <laughs> like I had something very special in my hands, and I dove into it. Um, and, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the phone with us right now, but this is hands down one of the best novels I've ever read in my entire life. And uh, we have lots of things to ask you about. But we, um, I reached out to Glennon Doyle, who was also on our podcast and the first pick for the Inky Phoenix, thinking that I had found this gem that was going to blow <laughs> Glennon's mind. <laughs> I had all these passages marked up and I texted her and I was like, Glennon, you have to read this book. To which she wrote back, sending me about eight photos um, with her highly bookmarked, <laughs> marked up copy of your book saying that she was going to do something with you on launch. Turns so, out my wife did not discover <laughs> Sumon Kid. <laughs> so very sad about that, but very glad that we are also simpatico. So it's very exciting to have you with us. Ah, uh, yes. So, Sue, we have so many questions. It's very difficult to begin, but I have to start with what has dramatically changed my life since I read your book. And it's the Anna's Prayer that you wrote. And the, I, w- I would love to read it just so everyone can listen to it, because I don't think anyone can listen to this prayer and not run to their bookstore immediately. So I'll just start off by reading this. Um, okay. I, and I would ask you to read it, but I don't want to assume that you always have a copy of your book in front of you. <laughs> no, you go for it. Okay. <clears throat> me, me, me. Lord, our God, hear my prayer, the prayer of my heart. Bless the largeness inside me, no matter how I fear it. Bless my reed pens and my inks. Bless the words I write. May they be beautiful in your sight. May they be visible to eyes not yet born. And when I am dust, sing these words over my bones. She was a voice. <laughs> it's insane. I get I, my my eyes are tearing up a little bit. And the thing about this prayer is, it's it's so powerful. It's so personal and simultaneously universal because I think the the words are interchangeable for whoever the reader is. They can take inks and pens and voice and turn that into you know what their personal life is applicable to. And and I just I wanted to know was this your prayer before? It was Anna's? Like, what's the the origin story for this? Well, that prayer um, is the prayer I want them to sing over my bones (laughs) one day, (laughs) Um, for sure. Um, I had actually, I've never told this story, but here we go. Um, I had, when I turned 70 not long ago, I mean, you start thinking about your mortality a little bit. Like, oh, wow, I'm not going to live forever after all. <laughs> and so I got in this vein of um, reading poetry. And one day I came across something that just touched me so deeply, and it was a, a longing for a voice. And so I wrote this prayer, or at least the last line of the prayer, when I am dust, sing these words over my bones. She was a voice, and I took it to my husband, and I said, when I'm dead and gone, if you're still here, I want, I want you to read this over my, over my, memori- at my memorial. Okay, that's how it started. Okay, Is that so not I'm crying. grim? Is that grim <laughs> enough for you? No, um, producer, producer Lindsay and I are both crying. Kate's not much of a crier, but we're, we're in it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now we've got to spend the rest of this podcast cheering people. All right, <laughs> 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 right. so... But, you know, the reality is that it touched me that deeply. Let's focus on that. And um, so it was sometime later that I discovered this incantation bowl in my research and knew immediately that Anna needed one. The novel, the story needed one. And it is a kind of tangible, visceral object that carries her longings around. And so... 
when I got ready to put the prayer in it, that's what came to me, and I added the rest. The other line that um, was very palpable for me was to bless the largeness in me, mm-hmm. even when I fear it. And so those two lines kind of anchor the depth of her longing. I'm just going to, I need to let that sit for a second. No, I'm good. No, okay. um, you know, when I finished the Book of Longings, one thing that struck me was how it, even though it's a piece of fiction, it made me see the world so differently. And for me, that's a rarity in fiction. Often, because I read a lot of nonfiction, often when I read nonfiction, and I know you, you've written so much nonfiction as well, that's where I get ideas that, that change how I might see something that in history or a way I view humanity. And it's, it's often rare for that to happen, for me anyway, in fiction. I think the last book that really changed how I saw the world was A Visit from the Goon Squad. And <laughs> this book was so similar in that I started to see the world differently. And, and I, I wondered for you writing it, did you start with certain ideas that you wanted to communicate and then build characters to embody them? Or do you, did they just sort of present themselves as you went through the process of writing? Each book seems to be different, each novel that is. And this one started with a character and a feeling and, a, and an idea all at once, which is the first time I've had that happen. Usually with The Secret Life of Bees and even with The Mermaid Chair, it started with an image, and I didn't have any idea at all about it. But the story sprouted out of the image. With this book, however... Um, I was reading something uh, in National Geographic about this, you know, papyrus that was called the Gospel of Jesus' Wife, in which he refers to his wife. Now, it turned out that fragment was a fake, (laughs) but it was kind of a, oh no, but it didn't matter to me because it had engaged my imagination, and immediately I saw this in my mind's eye, this... um, woman, young woman, an adolescent, um, she had wild black curly hair, and she was tall. I mean, I could just picture her, and her, she told me her name, Anna, and that she was going to marry Jesus, and I was electrified. <laughs> so um, I, ha- I just realized in that moment that it had, she was the real inspiration for it, and also that um, the kind of thought I had that followed, which was, well, if she, if there was a woman like this, then she would be the most silenced woman in history. Mm -hmm. So somebody has got to give her a voice, and that somebody will be me. (laughs) And I really never looked back after that. Just a quick follow-up, Catherine. Um, So you said you start with a character, a feeling, an idea. For this book. And that they speak to you, which I'm very interested in. And a a character, Anna, who you bring to life so beautifully, the idea, my assumption, right, is that she is the silenced wife of Jesus. And can you just describe what the feeling was for you? The feeling was actually longing. I I longed to give her a voice. And... I cannot abide silenced women. <laughs> I just can't take it. <laughs> so I, um, I felt like she deserved a voice. I don't know if she really ever existed, but in my mind at that moment she did. And I felt like she needed a voice for all kinds of reasons, mostly just because of the imbalance within religion and within culture and everywhere. And I wanted to set that straight if I could a little bit with my story. And so that was the, I think that was the idea. The feeling was pure longing to do it. And a kind of, um, what will I call this? Not outrage exactly, but that feeling of um, wanting to set a right wrong. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was a touch of um, outrage that I always carry around with me somewhere on my person. Mm -hmm. 
So I have a couple questions around the concept of longing for you. One, I'm always curious about where a book title comes from. And obviously, it seems like the word longing encompasses all of these emotions, both anger and beauty and magic and growth. Um, and I was also wondering, the book of longing, is that also a play on, you know, the book of Matthew, the gospel of... It's, I, I grew your, up Catholic. Show your Bible knowledge, it's, please. It's been a long time since I've there been to church. Was, I apologize. <laughs> Wait no, a second. No, it's true. It's absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, I wanted this to be her gospel, so yeah. to speak. Mm. Her, um, her sacred text, her sacred scripture that somehow never made it. And I tried to just structurally create it that feeling about it with the um, way I broke down chapters. They are similar to how the chapters in the New Testament are arranged. Mm. They're not strictly, you know, classically chapters like I normally would write, but more in that Thing. The only thing I didn't do was make verses out of it because that would have driven everyone crazy. <laughs> but she did um, at the beginnings say, uh, "This is my testament." Mm-hmm. And so, yes, um, I, I was trying. I was going for that a bit. Yeah. The, there's this great scene. Well, there's so many great scenes between Anna and Tabitha. Um, who Glennon was also very excited about that name when I spoke to her. Um, and you, there's a scene where they're playing make-believe about the tutor and their betrothed. And Anna has this idea that there was something strangely beautiful about the coming together of these two ways of life that she'd never imagined being um, synced. And this concept of duty and longing. And I just was wondering what your personal definitions of duty and longing are and do you, do you feel that you have personally married them in your life? Um, I think at this phase of my life, I, I have. Um, I always had something of a, a kind of con- conflict in my heart, so to speak, between what I'll call my creative side that wanted to go and out there and write, write, write and change the world and you know, that active part of me and the part of me that is equally strong, which is just a hermit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's not exactly accurate. It's, it's the part of me that wants to be uh, in solitude, to contemplate. It's a monkish part of me, really, mm-hmm. uh, to play off my name a bit. And I think that... Um, I, I struggled between those two things to give them both room in my life. It wasn't so much duty as it was these two sides of me that seemed to be in conflict. One was an inner, inward direction, and one was an outward direction. Because I, I'm pretty, I was always pretty ambitious, and you know, wanted to give my gift or to the world and, and be part of it all. And yet, a big part of me just wanted to sit and meditate or something. Mm-hmm. So that I had to rectify as I um, got older. I wrote actually about that in a memoir that I co-authored with my daughter called "Traveling with Pomegranates." Um, I guess that came out about two thousand and nine. So since then, I mean, I tried to work with it but that's so maybe I have married the other two I, I I have something of a rhythm going now you'll have to forgive this question in case you've answered it which you probably have in many of your, uh, your nonfiction work or possibly even traveling with pomegranates but I was wondering because when I was doing all my research on you know I, I know you graduated from TCU in 1970 and you're first book came out in 1990 and can you give us a little snapshot of what you were like back right when you first graduated from college I I did read about that you you know you did nursing training and you had two kids can you when you said like silenced women and outrage was there any part of you when you were younger before you started writing more that felt like you were searching for your voice in that same way as Anna um, yes and no. 
I think that for me, I started out as a child, um, an early adolescent, as a (laughs) proto-feminist. I mean, I was fiery. I had an acute sense of injustice, particularly with race living in the South Mm -hmm. and what I witnessed and how it affected me. And I've written about that, too. That's another big theme for me. Um, but with women, too, because I saw all of that, and I grew up in what I call the pre-feminist small-town South. Well, it doesn't get any more, well, smaller than that. And so I, I think I got a lot of that knocked out of me in a way, I, or not knocked out, but it went underground, so to speak. Um, I just ran up against a lot of experiences that I could not step outside of the confines of the world that shaped me. And it was probably a failure of courage on my part. And what I mean is that I became very conventional again, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, for a while. Um, I married. I had two toddlers. I worked part-time as a registered nurse on an obstetrical unit, and I had a picket fence and a dog in a station wagon. <laughs> and, um, and I wanted desperate... When I said yes and no, it's because I never lost this hunger to write. Mm-hmm. But it went underground, too, because when I went to college, um, I didn't study writing or English. I studied nursing, Mm -hmm. and that was a very conventional pick. And this goes back to a moment I had in home economics class in high school. I was a total disaster in there. Oh, yeah, home ec, (laughs) in which the teacher stood up and wrote the occupations for women on the blackboard. Oh, yeah. Mm. And now this was like 1965-ish, and I was just about you know, ready to start thinking. I think I was a junior in high school. I was starting to think about college, and I wanted to be a writer. That was it. It was not on the board. <laughs> so <laughs> I just, um, I mean, there were, you can imagine what was on the board. It wasn't very long either. Yeah. And this um, made an impression on me. I, I started to question and doubt. I didn't know any women writers. I came from a town of 3,500. My mother was a stay-at-home homemaker. Everybody in that town was. So I just thought, well, I guess I should play the role. Well, I did that as long as I could until I got so homesick for myself Mm -hmm. that I began to write. And I was 30 years old when it happened. It actually was on my 30th birthday, I thought, I can't not do this any longer. But I worked for 10 years, not quite 10 years, I guess, um, after graduating from TCU as a nurse on and off and had the the babies, you know. But then um, when I'd made up my mind that I would write, it was like a little renaissance went off in me. And I began to read um, Thomas Merton. They were mostly... At that time, I would say, like, Carl Jung and Thomas Merton, all these men, but brilliant ideas. I hadn't had my feminist revolution yet. I hadn't kind of returned to that. But I had a contemplative one, and it opened up my inner life, and my creative life began to flourish, and I began to write mostly nonfiction essays and stories and that kind of thing and freelance them. So that was before I wrote my first book. Um, My feminist return of all of that started a little later in my 30s, probably around the time I was about 36 or 7. So I was a little bit late returning to it. But when it came back, it had been sitting in a waiting room for all those years, and it was ferocious. (laughs) (laughs) I think listening to you, Sue, talk about your journey and the renaissance that you experienced, the the image that came up for me was this idea of you being the secret superhero. (laughs) And, (laughs) and hopefully maybe everyone listening feels like we all have a little Sue Monk kid just waiting to burst out of us. 
Um, because it, I just know so many people who have that longing, as you so eloquently said, uh, of that feeling of being homesick for themselves and knowing that there's this purpose right. inside of them that perhaps they haven't been able to put their finger on, but they know they haven't found what makes them come alive. And and I was listening to an interview of yours and you said, uh, maybe this isn't verbatim, but, but that you keep a, a quote in your home that reads, writing is an act of bravery. Is that correct? Writing is an act of courage. Courage, an act of courage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And clearly you are the mascot for that, but it, do you keep that <laughs> in your mascot. home because you already believe that or do you keep that in your home because you constantly need that reminder? Well, it was in my former home that I had to leave, but um, I had these, I had a whole bunch of quotes that I spent a ridiculous amount of time coming up with (laughs) stenciled in my stairwell that led up to my writing study. And this was, I think, the second one. So these were on the wall. And it started because I had a dream in which I was walking up my stairs and the walls were talking. And I was like, what in the world is going on? My walls are talking. And I decided that what that meant was I was supposed to stencil these quotes on my wall <laughs> and, um, so the walls could talk to me. And I picked them out, and they did inspire me. And at that time, yes, I, they were there because I needed them and I needed to be reminded. Um, now I carry them inside of me. Mm-hmm. Um, that has become just an extension of me almost in my creative life is that writing is an act of courage. Um, so yeah, I believe that, and I believe that's true for um, most women have something to say. They may have the ability to say it, but if we don't have the courage to say it, to write it, to be it, then it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It won't happen. Okay, I'm going to jump back into Anna now. Um, <laughs> because you you said a few minutes ago that when you when you read this little piece in National Geographic that Jesus had a wife, even though this was a fictional thing that you read, that Anna kind of came to you almost fully, right? The dark curly hair. Mm-hmm. During the process of writing her story, did she stay with you fully or did she ebb and flow? Were there times where you had to search for her or was, did she always stay present like that? She may have been the most present of any character I've ever written. Mm-hmm. She she was. Um, I I seem to know her from the beginning. Just um, and it never it never wavered. Her voice was there for me pretty quickly. I had to find a way to make her relatable and contemporary, even though she lived two thousand years ago, and yet to sound like she was part of that ancient world, that she belonged to it too. But she mostly, I wanted her to belong to women today. And so that was a matter of just striking a voice. And it came to me very rapidly. And um, I just seemed to know her. I don't know how that, it, a lot of this is just um, mystery, I guess, where these characters come from and whether they're fully formed or in process, maybe she'd been incubating in me for a long time, maybe. Well, speaking of characters that are just jump off the page when you read them, Yaltha, everyone, Yaltha. we all need a Yaltha. <laughs> I'm sure we're not the first people to say that to you. But her introduction in your book, you, you write, you say, her mind was an immense feral country that spilled its borders. She trespassed everywhere. Did, when you wrote those two lines, were you like, Killed oh, it. yeah, like nobody's <laughs> going to ever write a line. Like, I, I just feel like you must have had a really nice moment when you got those sentences down. <laughs> oh, there is a kind of satisfaction you get when you feel like you wrote something pretty good. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you, and you really need to savor those when they come because there's so much garbage in between. Isn't yeah, that the truth? Know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, because... The, I'm a very slow, meticulous rewriter, mm-hmm. and most of my little gems come in the rewriting, not in the first blush of it. And um, I, I just love language so much. I love to sit <laughs> for 
an inordinate amount of time and play with words. And this is why I'm so darn slow. So I think um, that line did give me a little pleasure because I thought it <laughs> it captured her, just captured her perfectly. It did, and I, I and I will it bring you pleasure to know that that probably will be stenciled on someone's stairwell in the future. <laughs> I <right>. believe. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> this is a little bit of like a, a geeky writer question, but when you're sitting with a sentence. And maybe there's that little voice inside of you saying, this can be a little bit better. Do, do you, you know, when you don't want to repeat words too much, mm-hmm. do you have a thesaurus? Do you challenge your mind? Like some people do the crosswords and you can't Google the answers. Do you challenge your mind that if you're going to come up with a synonym for a word, because you know there's a better word for it, that you have to think of it on your own? Do you left click on your word document <laughs> to check out the synonyms? Or do you, how does that work for you? Yeah, I do a little of both, actually. It depends on how the mood I'm in, I guess. But um, I will start off by writing something over and over. Even in my first draft, I write over and over because I am the poster girl for what you shouldn't do about this in writing school, I guess, (laughs) which is you should not rewrite until you finish some you know, first draft, then you go back and do it. Just get it out, they tell you. Mm. Well, I get it out a chapter, but I almost revise page by page by page. Mm -hmm. And I seem not able to go on until I can get it right and feel a certain feeling in my body even that, all right, it's done now, the best I can, I can move on. Um, So sometimes I will well, almost always, I will be with a, some sentence or paragraph or page for a long time trying to find how I want to say that. But if I run into too many roadblocks, I will check my thesaurus, and sometimes a word jumps out at mm-hmm. me, and it just kind of shakes the whole thing up. And the other thing I do, <laughs> you didn't ask me this. No, we, we want to hear it all. This, this is the bonus. <laughs> um if I get really stuck trying to revise something and it doesn't feel quite right, I will think the opposite of what it is. Mm. And it's more for plot than um, than anything. Not so much in descriptions, although that sometimes that helps too. But I'll just flip it completely over. And I can't even think of a reasonable example to tell you, but it often works for me. It's not that I use the opposite but it shakes my thinking up mm-hmm. into a completely new way. And sometimes I do use the opposite. Interesting. So it's, yeah, for whatever that is worth, you know. We will be testing it out and we'll report back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just hoping to write at least one sentence that will get stitched on a wall. We'll stitch it on our own, on our own wall, on our perhaps. Wall. Um, so uh, jumping back, we, we noticed when you were writing about Jesus, which I can only imagine is a massive act of courage to write about um, a religious figure such as Jesus, because obviously people are going to have quite the opinions about how he should be viewed and, and written about, that you left out his perceived miracles and um, the resurrection and Lazarus. And was that something that you did purposely because this is about Anna and not about Jesus. It just, it was so beautiful for me personally. I grew up Catholic to read about Jesus exactly how I kind of always imagined him to be like someone that you just is so warm and kind, but human, absolutely human in the book. Mm -hmm. That was very much on purpose. Um, I had to think long and hard about how to approach his character. It wasn't like Anna. It was Oh, it was laborious mm. effort to come up with how to do him. <laughs> and um, I was reading, I read a lot of um, scholarship on the historical Jesus. I had an instinct that I wanted to write the human Jesus and leave out anything that wasn't the human Jesus. Yeah. This is the novelist in me wanted to do. But it was not that well-formed, and I was still trying to grapple with it. And I read a um, book by Marcus Borg, and he had this paragraph that said, 
um, there are there is the pre-Easter Jesus and there's the post-Easter Jesus. Hmm. And I thought, well, that is fascinating. What he meant was the pre-Easter Jesus is that human flesh and blood Jesus who was born and died and lived a life. And many of those stories about him um, are accurate. We Then there's the post-Easter Jesus who... It's who he became through his followers, this, mm-hmm. this risen Christ. You know, there's Jesus and then there's Christ. So it was like that, and that differentiated it so clearly for me what I wanted to do. And I wanted to write the pre-Easter Jesus. And Marcus Borg also convinced me that it was a necessary thing because we have so focused on the divine Christ that the the human Jesus has kind of gotten eclipsed in a way, and maybe we've lost touch with what a, an amazing uh, human being he was. And by losing touch with that and imagining that he is, in fact, some deity that we can't emulate, you know, we lose something in our own lives. So we can imagine, well, maybe some of what he does as a human being is possible for me, the human being. It was that kind of thing I wanted to. Once I figured out how to, that I would have the ovaries to do that, <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> I, um, I just went for it. And it was that, but it was also that it was Anna's story. And I never wanted him to overshadow her, even though his is supposedly the greatest story ever told. And I won't argue with that at all. <laughs> um, but I think it was, I wanted her front and center. Yeah. And the, the scene of Jesus's crucifixion is one, the way you wrote it, that will stay with me forever. Um, and And there's a specific reason for that. And if, if you allow me a, a moment here, uh, like say about five months ago, my, my dad passed away and he, he passed away in such a way that we knew exactly when, cause he chose it. And I remember thinking during the course of this process in the hospital that I had to absorb it all. I had to keep my eyes open and that mm. this was a risky thing I was going to be doing, but that I would regret not doing it. And when I read that chapter you wrote, it the way that you write about Anna's decision that she has to see it all is so powerful. I'm I'm wondering did when how that idea and it's I can't say it's like we can't ever be the first people to have thought of it because I know so many people probably feel this way in certain moments about absorbing really hard things but I just thought the way that you wrote that was so so empathetic and and honest and real and I wanted to know kind of what the process was of 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 writing that that was a very hard chapter to write uh, or section and I it took me almost a month to write it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I rewrote it a lot. But w- but what was going on was I was going by the seat of my pants every day, not knowing, I had no plan for it. Yeah. But I realized right away that this had to be the women's hour too, that they would walk with him, that they would encourage him. But Anna, when she knelt beside the, um, when he fell, when Jesus fell on the street beneath the cross beam. And she went to him and she said to herself, what would he most like to hear in this last moment? Mm. That just about did me in. I had to get, I had to take a lot of walks trying to move through this chapter because it was actually emotional for me. Um, And mostly I guess I tried to say to him what I would want someone to say to me. And I and Anna giving him her the full attention of her heart and her mind in that moment is what I would want someone to do for me. That's all I had to go by. 
mm-hmm. because I have not, I mean, I have not lost someone intimately close to me. My parents are both still alive at 98. Oh, wow. You know, and so I could only use my kind of imagination and and empathy, like you said. Well, I thought it was a, it was a beautiful scene. Yeah. And it's very much influenced uh, Kate's writing. I just wanted to say that because I know... She just wrote a beautiful essay yesterday, and thank you for your influence. Yeah, it, it cracked something that. open for her. Um, something that I also noticed in that scene that yeah. Kate didn't point out was just that it, specifically mm-hmm. it was all the women who didn't look away. that Or who were even really there. That were present for the entire experience of it. And that kind of brings us back to that concept of Yalta and trespassing everywhere. And, and how I know you're no stranger of fusing... Uh, spiritualism with feminism with especially with your nonfiction work that you and your essays and this book is so uh, you know it, it's been cobbled isn't the right word it, it's been yoked y- yoked yes it's been woven together so beautifully the two and uh, I mean is feminism a spiritual journey specifically for you um yes it is I would say um even the political side of it feels that way to me. I guess um, my spiritual life has been largely about trying to widen out my relationship to the divine in all things. So it's become more ordinary, more everyday, more um, bigger, with spilling its borders, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but... Um, feminism and the feminine have held a lot of uh, of my spiritual life. Over my desk is a big painting of the Black Madonna, and she is a, an icon, I suppose you would say, for me, or an image that holds a lot of that divine um, imagery that I need to relate to, even though my concept of the divine of God or goddess is um, really more of a, more like Anna's, <laughs> more of that I am who I am, this beingness in our midst, you know, the treeness of a tree kind of thing. So I need, though, to relate to it, and it's very hard to relate to an abstraction sometimes. <laughs> so this is why I think we we need imagery, and and if we're going to do it, then by God, let's do it in an egalitarian way, you know? Mm-hmm. So I like to see both the feminine and masculine imagery, as long as we understand that there is a God behind all of that conceptualization. That's interesting. Do you, because, like I said, I grew up Catholic, um, and I've, I've not been to church religiously probably since high school, um, but find myself to be a very spiritual person. And I've always been attracted to the goddess and, and to the religions who have honored the, the, the female deity and the goddess and Artemis in particular has been a very strong figure for me as far as my um, in, inspiration for how I write, how I behave, how I teach. And do you do you think the answer in society, if we are trying to to yoke things, is maybe not leaning into the concept of male or female when it comes to divinity, but perhaps this more nebulous asexual concept of what God or the universe is? I know you refer to God as Sophia in the Book of Longings, which I love, but then that just started me down the path of like, well, I don't know if I think God is a man or a woman ultimately it just seems like this I don't think God has sexual organs you know yeah yeah really (laughs) (laughs) um I couldn't agree more I remember something that um Dr. Sally McFaig said who is a theology professor at Vanderbilt that stayed with me and it was God is he she and neither Mm. and that kind of says it all in a way because Ultimately, God is not a man or a woman no. or the personification of this. And people, I mean, it's a form of idolatry even to think that, I think. And that was yeah. what, what yeah. you know, Paul Tillich, the 
theologian made a big point of saying that behind our concepts of God, there lies God. And that God uh, is a mystery to me, but I, I experience it as beingness, as presence of love, that kind of thing. Yes, that's an abstraction. Um, but I guess we all have to search for that. That's a hunger in us mm-hmm. to relate to something transcendent and imminent as well um, that ended within ourselves, which I think it ultimately dwells. So, wow, aren't we the theological summit? <laughs> I know, listen to us. <laughs> I didn't see it going that way, but just had to ask. <laughs> I wish I could bring something lighthearted now, but I'm going to go <laughs> more <laughs> philosophical. I, I saw this quote that you gave to, I think you actually wrote it to the New York Times when the invention of of wings came out. So this would have been six years ago or so. And you were talking mm-hmm. about empathy and you know, said, it, it, I'll, I'll quote you back to you, but empathy is the most <laughs> mysterious transaction that the human soul can have. And it's accessible to all of us, but we have to give ourselves the opportunity to identify, to plunge ourselves in a story where we see the world from the bottom up or through another's eyes or heart. And I can say for, for me, the Book of Longings absolutely did this. It was a transaction of, of empathy. Um, there's no question other than, is that, does that quote still resonate with you? And do you have anything to add to it for us? Um, I, that absolutely says it all for me about mm-hmm. why I do what I do. Yeah. And um, I, I mean... Maybe I simplified that too much because I think we do what we do for lots of reasons, and some of them are selfish, and some of them are magnanimous. Mm-hmm. And we, I think we have to keep reminding ourselves that there is this reason we do this. And for me, it has to do with the experience of empathy in, in a reader. Um, I think literature probably is, its purpose is probably empathy, its highest purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people would disagree with me about that, but I think it does give us this ability to expand our hearts, and it is a mysterious thing. I don't know what else, Kate, I would say about that. I think um, I'll leave it right there. Yeah, no, <laughs> that, I think that's sufficient. Yeah, no, that was. Well, we'll shift gears. We're just going to ask you a fun a few short, quick hit questions. So we'll move away from our theologian and empathy. (laughs) The gender of God. (laughs) So, Sue, what was the last book you read? Oh, Holy Misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. (laughs) And we're back. Yes. Well, I... Uh, let me think of the uh, the one before that. <laughs> oh no! It's, um, <laughs> it's a book on feminism by Rebecca Solnit. Okay. Oh my! Well, you know, the, I have been reading some fiction lately. Um, I just can't think what it is. It's <laughs> not popping up right now. It's okay. Yeah. Well, if, the, if those were the last books you read, then, that, then that's what we wanted to know, and we're going to look them up. <laughs> we are definitely looking okay. those up. Um, okay. Is there a book? The question is, what is the book that you have, in quotations, fake read? You know, like, is there a classic out there that everyone seems to have read that you're like, oh, yeah, Anna Karenina, my favorite, you know, anything oh, yeah. along those oh, lines? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we all have one of those, don't we? Mine is probably, and this is very embarrassing, um, is probably Virginia Woolf's novels. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I her her um, her life is absolutely fascinating to me, and I I actually traveled to England to her home in Sussex. It's called Monk's House, by the way, and just as a pilgrimage and laid a pencil on her grave there. I, mm. That's how much she means to me. And yet, so I cannot make sense of no. her novel. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, um, the, the novel, I mean, the nonfiction piece she did that had such an impact on me, her is the first quote on my wall or was on my wall. Um, if a woman is to write fiction, she must have a room of her own. Mm. 
And so, yes, that To the Lighthouse is the one I'm thinking about, the, the novel that I couldn't do. Well, maybe we'll try it out and, and yeah, we and, can do little, yeah. some cliff notes for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, what book out of all books that have been written of all time do you wish, if you could have written, that you would have written? Oh, what a question. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, Catherine's is Dracula, by the way. I know. I'm so yeah. weird. <laughs> Is it, well, no, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, let me think a minute. You got to let's just put on a. Yeah, we can put these are these are hard questions. This okay. is the la- the last one is an easy one. Yes. All right, I'm going to say Jane Eyre. Yes. Okay. okay. Yes. I, I mean, that, pro- I love, I love Miss Victorian literature. Yes, that's one of I those mean, books I turned, tell people I read, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> she. I love. I love Charlotte Bronte. All the Bronte sisters. That's yeah. a big deal for me. I love Jane Eyre. The other book that had a powerful effect on me was uh, Kate Chopin's *The Awakening*. *Awakening*. Hmm. Okay, I'm writing that down. And okay. you know, there's just so many of them, but I know it's I a hard question. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, but I w- there's a bunch of them I wouldn't have minded writing. Yeah, <laughs> feel free to email us later when it, when it all comes to <laughs> yeah. you once we okay. hang up. Um, Sue, if you were to get a tattoo or a new tattoo, I don't want to assume, what would it be? Hmm. Maybe I would have a turtle. Okay. <laughs> I, I love my Because of the way you They're, write? <laughs> um, yeah, that's does that mean? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. I don't know. They, you, the turtle is a is a beautiful symbol to me, and I keep one on my right here on my computer. Hmm. Well, they're they're all over the place here in my study, but um, I see that they're ancient and full of wisdom. They've been around. Yep. I feel like they've seen everything. And they continue <laughs> to exist. They're yeah. little and they sponges. Just, they carry their home wherever they go, mm-hmm. and they they're contemplative, and they're just great little creatures i don't know so maybe it would be a little turtle it would be be very little (laughs) just a little seedling turtle i mean most people think it would be a bee i wouldn't mind a bee maybe i'll have a little menagerie somewhere right start with the turtle you you don't want to go too obvious right you'd be like walking in like i want a bee okay so monk kid (laughs) (laughs) all right our final question most important that we ask all of our guests Chocolate chip cookie or oatmeal raisin? Chocolate chip cookie. Yes. Okay. Kate is, we we call them trash cookies. Well, I don't. I I just say I love oatmeal raisin and I have to defend them. Because apparently a lot of people like to trash oatmeal raisin cookies. Yeah. I'm a big chocolate chip person and my husband is an oatmeal raisin person. (gasps) Oh, okay. Well, tell him hello for me. I will. (laughs) We have so much in common. I will do that. Yeah. Amazing. Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and congratulations on such a beautiful masterpiece. Your book is a beautiful work and we're just so, we're we're lucky to have read it. So thank you. Well, that's very, very nice to hear and I appreciate it so much and it has been fun to talk to you. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Sue Monkhead author of The Book of Longings. And if you have not gotten this book yet, actually you can get it through. Yes, actually yeah. you can, if you want to support independent bookstores, you can order it through Blue Bicycle Books. That's the local indie store in Charleston, South Carolina that partners with my book club, The Inky Phoenix, and we have signed copies. And we have a discount code. And we have a discount code. Wait for it. Wait for it. It's oatmeal, raisin is the best. Wait, that's going to confuse people. It's free cookies. That's all kinds of lies. Yeah. <laughs> Everything about that is a lie. Uh, you'll get 10% off with the code free cookies at Blue Bicycle Books. Just go to the Inky Phoenix tab and you'll find the book there and grab mm. it. Mm. And although Sumon Kid did not choose oatmeal raisin, I was heartened to hear that it was her husband's favorite. Right. So there was at least that consolation prize. that all of us have in common. And we just want to be best friends with Sue Monkey. We do. Yeah, and I'm sure she's still listening to this point. Um, just like so, all of you are. And that's why this is a wrap. We are produced by Lindsay Collins of F&B Radio, who we dearly, dearly love. We do. We do. You can find us on Instagram at Free Cookies Podcast or Catherine's Book Club at The Inky Phoenix. You can email us at freecookiespodcast at gmail.com. 
And a big, big thank you if you have taken the time to rate and review us on we Apple Podcasts. We love the rates and the reviews. We want to say thank you to Desley Lesmond and thank you to Chris J408 for the very kind. And I, I mean, when people write long reviews on this, y'all, we respect that. We love it. We read all of these. Thank you so much. It means a ton to us. And also, if you love this podcast and you really love the fact that there aren't any ads that you have to push the little fast forward 50, 15 seconds thing and again. Sometimes it's, and then you got to back again, up 15 seconds and, and you so annoying. forward 30. It's just a whole math equation. If you don't want that in your life, but you want more free cookies, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash free cookies. Keep and the you free can cookies free. A patron. You can give us a, a dollar. You can give us three. You can give us $10,000. Which we are now what going to give. Which we are now going to give away as we do at the end of every show. And we will ship you Ashi Beauty. <sighs> Just kidding. <laughs> Poke holes in the box and ship her off to you. Thank, Thank you. you. Do not shake. Thank you for list. Put cookies in this box. <laughs> okay, that is the end of the show. You going to say anything else, Catherine? Or I can keep talking. <laughs>